As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello, my name is Tim Wyatt and you're listening to Matters of Life and Death. This week we're digging into assisted dying. A bill to legalise it in England has been introduced to Parliament. What does it propose? And how likely is it to actually become law? And zooming out a little, what are the social factors behind this renewed push to introduce a form of euthanasia to Britain for the first time? And in particular, via the House of Lords of all places? And finally, we discuss what we might be able to learn from Canada which has brought in its own form of assisted suicide with some alarming consequences since we in the UK last debated this issue six years ago. Stay with us as I speak with my dad, the doctor and professor of ethics, John Wyatt, to chat about all that and much more. Welcome, John. Thanks for dialing in again for another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, our topic today uh, is going to be assisted dying. Uh, some people will have seen this is kind of rising in, in the news agenda. Uh, there's a new bill being introduced into the House of Lords we're about to discuss. Um, but first first off, what do we mean by assisted dying? Is it the same as euthanasia? Is it different to assisted suicide? Some people might be a bit confused around the language here. Yeah, it, well, it's a very important just before we um, get going to define terms. And uh, this this strange phrase, assisted dying, is a deliberately euphemistic phrase which has been adopted by the pro-assisted um, suicide uh, and euthanasia lobby groups. And um, it's undoubtedly... What it means is a physician providing lethal drugs uh, to a person with a terminal illness and with the intention that that person should kill themselves. And so in any other uh, setting, this would be described as suicide or taking one's own life. Uh, but the uh, lobby groups have, have chosen this phrase, assisted dying, and it, and it seems pretty obvious that that's because it sounds nice and euphemistic. And there's quite a lot of evidence, you know, that when public polls are done, so if you stop people in the street and say, do you think the law should be changed to allow doctors to assist dying people so they die peacefully and quietly and, and without pain? Um, not surprisingly, a large majority of the British population say, yes, the law should be changed to allow that. With, But uh, if you spell out precisely what's meant, then the, uh, the percentages change significantly. And it's also, I think, a way of steering away from uh, kind of, or at least obfuscating the legal position. So as people might know, might not know, um, suicide itself is 
not a criminal act, though it was historically until 1960s. Um, in this country, it was decriminalised, so it's, it's no longer a crime to kill yourself or to attempt to kill yourself. But it is still a crime, a criminal offence, punishable by, I believe, up to eight years in prison to help another person kill themselves. Um, and so I think part of the, the emphasis on rebranding assisted suicide as assisted dying is to try and disconnect in people's minds. What this actually is, is about... Um, you'd have to rewrite part of the 1961 Suicide Act to to create an exception. So that would make so it would be illegal for you or I to help someone to kill themselves, but it would no longer be illegal for a doctor within these certain conditions. Yes, that's right, and it's also worth uh, noticing that uh, if you look around the world at similar legislation, how different language is used in in uh, the Netherlands. The Dutch, with their reputation for being pretty blunt and straight, just talk about euthanasia and assisted suicide. Um, in Canada, there's this rather strange phrase, medical aid in dying. And in Oregon, um, the act which um, supports assisted suicide is called the Dignity in Dying Act. So um, it, it's, it's fascinating to see the way that different countries uh, choose different wording to describe what's fundamentally the same act. Some people think that we should kind of get stuck into a, a culture war on the language and refuse to give an inch and continue to stubbornly call it assisted suicide, even though the proponents and the literal name of the bill is the assisted dying bill. Uh, what's your view on that? Well, I think I think it is a bit it's quite a, a difficult and nuanced position. I certainly want to point out the importance of language um, because this is this is. Um, has always been bedeviled the debates about various forms of mercy killing um, and the very selection of the of the word euthanasia which goes back several hundred years literally meaning good death that was selected to refer to uh, medical killing uh, for for euphemistic reasons so I think it's important to talk about the language and, and to flag up that this is a manipulative use of language but nonetheless I think it's better, given that assisted dying is now the the currency that is being used and that the assisted dying bill 2021 is, is being debated in the Houses of Parliament, I think um, it probably makes sense for us to refer to as assisted dying with, with perhaps this little proviso that we just point out the strangeness of the name. Hmm. So let's get into it then. Um, some people will have heard of this, some people might not. Uh, what is the Assisted Dying Bill 2021? Uh, who proposed it? What is, what, is it? what is it trying to do? Yeah, so Baroness Meacher uh, has proposed this as a, uh, as a private bill. It isn't sponsored by <clears throat> any of the political parties, um, but it is currently going through the House of Lords. It's had the first reading earlier this year, and there's going to be a very important debate <clears throat> taking place on the floor of the House of Lords on the 22nd of October. And um, the bill is basically, uh, the provision of the bill is that um, in order to qualify for, um, for assisted suicide or assisted dying, you should be, first of all, an adult uh, with a terminal illness. So and, and a terminal illness is defined as less than six months to live. Uh, interestingly, you don't have to have any degree of suffering or pain or distress. 
uh, or deterioration of function or disability, you simply have to have a terminal illness with less than six months to live. Uh, secondly, you have to show that you are mentally competent and that you are, uh, and thirdly, that you're not subject to coercion by any other person, that this is a, a pure autonomous decision of yourself to kill, to kill yourself. And if you meet those criteria, two doc independent doctors are, are uh, supposed to assess and certify that that's the case. If they suspect there's any kind of mental uh, illness, such as depression, they are instructed that they have to seek the advice of a psychiatrist. Um, they, they then uh, has to be confirmed by the High Court. There has to be a 14-day waiting period, and, and unless it's a very urgent situation. And then uh, the doctor prescribes a lethal oral medication, um, a, a selection of drugs which are designed to kill rapidly and cleanly and painlessly. Uh, he, he or she gives the medication, instructs the person how to how to take it. But in the end, the person themselves, with the, who wants to kill themselves, they have to take the medication themselves. And the doctor is supposed to stay there uh, at, uh, with the patient until death has occurred. obviously a new bill in 2021 it's actually very closely modelled on previous legislation that's been introduced to the House of Lords and the House of Commons in the past isn't it? It is it's almost entirely a rerun of a um, bills that were debated in both the Lords and the Commons back in 2015 and uh, at that time they were very uh, particularly in the Commons there was a very strong a large majority against. There was a very good, high-quality debate within the on the floor of the House, and in the end, uh, the MPs voted strongly, two to one, against uh, changing the law. Um, but we're in a different world now. Things have things have moved, and in interestingly, the House of Lords, in some ways, has changed its complexion. What, what do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, my, and, and I'd be interested in your perspective on all this, but the my perspective is that whereas historically the House of Lords would, was always seen as tending towards traditional attitudes, conservative with a small c, um, and, and, and opposing very radical changes, um, there's a, the, the atmosphere in the House of Lords is very different now. And I think there are a number of reasons why that is. Partly it's because uh, many of the hereditary peers no longer have, have the right to participated debates um, the there's been an appointment of a lot of um, younger peers by both political parties but particularly by the Labour Party by Tony Blair's government and, and succeeding governments have have packed the benches with their own party apparatchiks maybe <laughs> maybe that's a bit unfair but by people who are uh, their own supporters and um, and and Generally speaking, the atmosphere within that, that there is a strong radical and liberal, uh, with a small l, uh, faction within the House of Lords. Yeah, I find this particularly fascinating as a a, a previous student of of British history and 
I remember studying at school, at university, various kind of major political reforms throughout the kind of Victorian and 20th century eras. And almost always the House of Lords was a kind of reactionary block to what was perceived as progress uh, with things like, you know, expanding the franchise to women or to working class men or various other reforms like that. Um, it was the MPs who were forward thinking and trying to push society forward. And it and the, the Lords was a historically, I guess you say, a traditionalist, small C conservative reactionary block, which stood there and said, you know, we won't stand for this. And it is fascinating to see how that how in some senses you could even argue that that has shifted. And, and now um, the Lords seems to me to be there's a significant number of people who are um, are kind of taking up their seat in the Lords quite explicitly because they kind of see it as a as a cockpit for their kind of freelancing, legislating, uh, creative, imagineering, reforming. Um, lots of those people, like you mentioned, people who've been appointed um, by both Labour and Conservatives since since the reforms in the 1990s got rid of most of the hereditary peers. Um, and there's a real sense in which, you know, they are kind of, uh, it's a job for life. It's not a, t- you don't have to get re-elected. You're not accountable to anyone. Um, they're often people who might uh, have kind of retired from a previous career and have lots of time on their hands. Um, and, and they are fundamentally, unlike MPs, they don't have a constituency. They don't have a, a, an electorate that they have to go and engage with, let alone be re-elected by every five years. And that gives them a freedom to to kind of explore interesting, radical, progressive ideals. Yeah, it is really interesting, isn't it? And uh, I, I wonder also whether, you know, many of them, as you said, they're, they're recently retired professional people or professional politicians or whatever. So they're very much a boomer generation. They've had, um, you know, the, the concerns of the baby boomers. They've experienced relative uh, wealth. They've, they're, they're used to independence, to individual autonomy. Uh, to uh, to be able to uh, you know further their own individual ends and and it's interesting that death and dying is seen as one of the last bastions against this kind of radical liberal revolution which which you can trace back to the the 1960s and I, I know that some people from the kind of libertarian and uh, liberal perspectives think it's just completely outrageous that here in 2021 you cannot decide you can although you can control every other aspect of your life it's outrageous that you cannot control the time and the mannering of the way you die of something so important surely we must have the right to choose Hmm. and i also think it's a really um interesting to note how um while you know a lot of mps also come from a kind of upper middle class, white collar, professional background, by virtue of being an, a, a public representative, um, they all, every Friday, they all depart Westminster and head back into their constituencies across the UK. And they spend a day doing effectively kind of like quasi social work where constituents come to them and say, you know, I've got this problem with my benefits or I'm in this dispute with the council and they mediate and they advocate and they lobby and they receive countless emails and letters from real ordinary human beings. And I think for all the flaws of our parliamentary system, this is a great aspect because it ties these MPs to the real world. They're actually better informed than almost anyone else in kind of Westminster uh, London kind of elite society because every week they're dragged back into the real world and the kind of suburban 
uh, ordinary uh, concerns of, of, of Middle England, whereas peers just can live in this rarefied Westminster bubble um, and, you know, in the kind of salons and clubs and bars get carried away with, with their kind of reforming radical liberal ideals. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that. One of the interesting things that, that came out of the uh, previous debate in the House of Commons on this topic uh, was that it, it was clear that uh, many MPs, you know, who hadn't thought a great deal about death and dying prior to the debate, because they took it very seriously, they knew this was an important debate, they wanted to do the right thing. So they went into their constituents and found out whether anybody were their hospices that looked after dying people here and so they'd gone and looked and, and spoken to their local hospital many MPs said you know we're in our constituent we're very proud of the work of our local hospice and I went along and I talked to them and to my surprise the people working in the hospice who were experts in dying were not in favor of this bill and they gave me a number of reasons why not so I felt I need to need to to say that to the house and um you know again as you say it was a very impressive seeing how seriously the mps took this work i, I think the whole point about it is is that once you take off the party allegiances and the party whips and you give mps a conscience vote then actually the quality of the democratic debate that can go on in both the commons and the laws is 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 actually quite high Mm. It's worth pausing for a second, perhaps for those who might not be um, familiar with kind of parliamentary procedure, explaining kind of all the live or land ahead for the for the assisted dying bill. So the current stage it's at is the, um, it's been introduced and it's had a first reading, uh, which which is um, really just to kind of say there is this bill, it exists, um, but no vote is taken. Um, and then it's been kind of, you know, circulated and di digested by the peers. And what is happening next is what's called a second reading, which is in October, I think. Um, and that's when uh, there will be a debate about the bill on the floor of the House of Lords. People will say their say little speeches about what they think about it, and at the end they will take a vote. And if it um, if it is voted down, it dies there and then. But if it passes that that stage, and it goes on to something called committee stage, which is where a small group of MPs will kind of pull out and and uh, explore it uh, and rewrite bits of it, suggest amendments, and then it comes back for a third reading, which is the kind of final stage. And then, of course, if it passes all stages in the House of Lords, it then, before it becomes an actual law, it has to go to the House of Commons. Um, and, and historically, social issues such as this, which don't have a kind of party political stance, the parties um, don't, don't whip, which is to say they don't compel their MPs to vote the party line. There won't be an official Labour or Conservative or Lib Dem position on the bill, probably. Uh, MPs will be given a free vote, which means that they can vote however their conscience dictates. So it means that these kind of debates in, in Parliament are almost uniquely very difficult to predict because the parties don't have set standing. So you can't just count up numbers and see who's going to win. That's right. And, and uh, interestingly, um, the, a, a YouGov poll quite recently in August uh, surveyed MPs <clears throat> on this particular uh, question on the assisted dying bill and said were they in favour or against and the results were very interesting because of very approximately 35% said yes we're in favour, 35% said no we're against and the remaining said we're undecided at the moment. So you get the strong impression that it's actually very finely balanced and that it could go either way. I mean, if, if all those who are undecided decide to vote in favour of the bill, uh, it will pass with a very strong majority. But conversely, if they all decide to vote against, there will be a very strong majority against. Mm -hmm.
shall we look a little bit briefly in a bit more detail at what the bill suggests and and pull out what we might see as some of the the flaws and the and the problematic elements of it well i i think we're not going to have time to do a sort of detailed dissection just just to say that uh, i've written a document called what's wrong with the assisted dying bill which is available on my website and also has been published by care i think on their website and i've been actively involved in writing a short book called assisted dying which uh, is going to be published uh, jointly by CARE and by Christian Medical Fellowship. So I, I think in terms of sort of dissecting the arguments, I, I think uh, we, we really haven't time to do this now. But just to point out that at first glance, it seems, you know, very plausible, very reasonable, very rational. There are appropriate safeguards or so it seems. I think once you start digging in <clears throat> my own belief and, and, and along with many others, is in fact it, there are all kinds of holes and problems with it. And, and it's almost inevitable <clears throat> that even if it was passed, there would be immediately a whole series of test cases arguing, for instance, you know, why does it have to be six months? What if somebody has a degenerative condition like motor neurone disease and they are suffering, but they've got nine months or 12 months? You know, how reliable is the six months? Uh, how good are doctors at spotting whether there's any kind of coercion or uh, manipulation from relatives or, and, and so on? So I think there are all kinds of, of issues. Um, and, and one of the questions is, you know, as we look elsewhere in the world, what can we learn from how this kind of legislation ha- ha- has gone on? Mm. And there's one of the most interesting things that has changed since Britain last debated this, which was the the Rob Maris bill in the um, House of Commons in 2015, is that in the in that time, um, Canada has become one of the late, latest countries to to legalise its own kind of regime of, of assisted suicide, which it calls uh, medical assistance in dying. And that's actually something I've been looking into quite recently. I've been doing um, some some research and work for a, a charity called the Religion Media Centre and did a briefing about assisted dying. And so I did some reading around the world and spent some time kind of finding out what's really been happening in Canada, how the law was passed in the first place, but also what's happened in the kind of five or six years since they brought in their own um, assisted assisted dying regime. Yeah, and, and again, we probably haven't got time to go into detail and, and the more detailed information will be, will be written up elsewhere. But what were the things that really struck you from as you investigated what had been going on in Canada? I think the, the, the most striking thing that jumped out as I was doing some reading and speaking to a few Canadian doctors on the phone was just the um, the speed and the almost the severity of of the slippery slope. Um, the slippery slope is a kind of argument that people might be familiar with, which says, you know, when you legalise even a very restricted, limited form of assisted dying, it will quickly kind of um, expand, expand and expand until you end up with something which was not what anyone was calling for in the first place. And it's often derided by... Uh, opponents, sorry, proponents of assisted dying as a kind of canard, a philosophical uh, fallacy. Um, it, it's seen as like a, just a, you can just dismiss it. And what is absolutely striking is that Canada is a real time, real life example of how the slippery slope works because it's just been five, just five years since the first person was killed or, or died under Canada's uh, MAID made laws medical assistance in dying and yet 
in that very short time, the kind of euthanasia procedures have um, expanded and spread and evolved in, in incredible speed. So, so in what way is that? Because originally it was intended for people who with uh, effectively suffering terribly and who were close to death, wasn't that was the that was the what the Supreme Court said, wasn't it? There were particular cases that they that it was based on. But the Canadian Supreme Court then said that it was the duty of the different states in Canada to come up with procedures to help people who were in extreme difficulty and, and, and suffering in, uh, at the end of life. That's exactly right. So it was uh, it was a, a Supreme Court case which which ruled that the kind of absolute prohibition that existed in Canadian law on on assisting suicide was was unconstitutional. And so that forced the government to, to create an assisted dying law. But the law was quite strictly limited. It said uh, you had to be 18 or older, mentally competent, suffering from a very serious physical uh, health condition in an advanced state of decline, in, in severe suffering, which was um, unsolvable, and someone who's who's natural death was quote reasonably foreseeable um, and this was normally interpreted as again similar to the UK legislation around six months um, and what has happened since is that within almost overnight as soon as the law came in the uh, advocates and euthanasia kind of lawyers and pro-euthanasia doctors began nibbling away at the edges and pushing and pushing and so um, it's uh, the six month limit through a combination of kind of court cases and precedent and, and public campaigning has slipped now first to five years, then it became 10 years. Um, uh, and now I think um, it's basically uh, you don't have to be terminally ill at all. Um, uh, and also what, what you've seen is the, the eligibility criteria have been expanded as well. So initially it was it deliberately excluded anyone under 18 uh, who wasn't terminally ill and who uh, um, who had a psychiatric condition um, and you had to be able to give kind of informed consent on the day of your death which excluded people with things like dementia as well and and what's happened in Canada is that that has um, gradually been unpicked um, and and it, uh, through a kind of combination of legal challenges um, but also uh, ultimately the government uh, passed a, a kind of reform to the bill its, its own bill earlier this year so less than five years after the bill was passed in the first place the government was rewriting it and that um, uh, struck out the requirement to be terminally ill um, but also uh, set in motion to expand it um, in two years time it will expand to include psychiatric conditions so you don't have to be you don't have to have cancer or or a severe degenerative condition, uh, you could simply just be suffering from depression or anxiety. Uh, and if you say that your suffering is unbearable, even if you're, you know, 21 years old and could reasonably expect to live for another 70 years, uh, if two doctors agree that your suffering is unbearable and you have a clear and voluntary settled wish to die, uh, 14 days later, you can be given a lethal injection. And what about younger people as well? There's been movements of that, hasn't there? Again, people less than 18 years old. That's right. So um, at present, the law is still the case that you have to be over 18. But there is in the reform bill that they passed over this year, they included a commission to explore the question of whether so-called mature minors 
So these are people who are legally minors because they're under the age of 18, but they're deemed to have enough mental capacity and competency to decide their own medical treatment. So this normally means kind of teenagers, basically, who are assessed as being can understand what they're asking for. Uh, there's there's been, again, a huge amount of advocacy and lobbying um, and, and that is now being formally considered by a parliamentary commission, I believe, uh, whether they should um, expand it to, to under 18s. And I understand paediatricians in Canada have, have been getting requests from parents, you know, of, of, of children with severe problems and disabilities, uh, requests yeah. for, for MAID. So it's definitely around. clauses and the protection from those who didn't from doctors and hospitals who didn't want to have anything to do with it Mm. so similarly to what you hear in the uk when this was going through the courts and through parliament in canada in 2015-16 everyone insisted that there would be very rigorous conscience provisions and so if you were a doctor or a nurse or even you know the manager of a hospital and you decided you didn't agree with medical assistance in dying um, you could opt out and there will be no one will be able to kind of compel you to to take part but what has actually happened in practice is much more complex and so um uh there are actually are quite a number of christian institutions as part of canada's kind of public health system like hospitals and surgeries and charities who who are funded by the kind of state um uh but have a kind of Christian ethos and sometimes even run still by kind of nuns and that kind of thing. And many of those have it kind of written into their constitutions that they're, they're barred from taking part in, in, in things in, in euthanasia of any sort. And, and what has happened in many cases is that uh, there has been vigorous campaigning by, by local uh, pro-euthanasia advocates saying that this amounts to a postcode lottery. So, for example, if they, the argument goes you know, assisted dying is a legal right of every citizen in Canada. And if your local hospital is a Catholic hospital and has decided to opt out, that means that people in that vicinity are being denied their legal right, QED, the hospital should not be allowed to conscientiously object. And so we've seen a number of often Catholic origin uh, or Christian origin institutions who have been either bullied and threatened or actively sued to um, and have now caved and have agreed to allow assessments and sometimes even actual uh, euthanasia administration to take place on their properties but also i've been speaking to some canadian doctors um, many many of whom have deep misgivings about this and and have a, a very clear sense in which you know their job is to heal and is to protect life and that they did not sign up when they trained as doctors to to take life because it's worth noting that in Canada it's not just assisted suicide but there's also euthanasia so they're do- and actually the 99% of people who die are not killing themselves but are being given a lethal injection by their doctor um, and so there are doctors across Canada who have stated again that they have a conscientious objection and they won't take part and some provinces have accepted that but in other provinces, including Ontario, which is Canada's largest province and includes, you know, cities like Toronto, um, the local uh, health authorities there have said have been very critical and hostile of doctors, um, Christian or otherwise, trying to conscientiously object. Uh, I spoke to one doctor who said um, they uh, they've been told, OK, they, they don't have to physically inject a patient themselves. 
but if a patient requests uh, euthanasia they are obliged to refer them to a, a doctor colleague they know who will pro- who will provide euthanasia and this doctor said well that also breaches my conscience i can't be involved at any stage in the chain even if i'm not the person actually depressing the syringe and their health authority said tough those are the rules and so this doctor is currently in a kind of in a battle and is opening themselves up to disciplinary action and maybe even suspension yeah so it is quite startling isn't it i too you know reading up about canada have been really startled at the speed and and i do find it very disturbing because you know although very often um the euthanasia activists those in favor of a change of law they point to other places like the netherlands or like the state of oregon uh it I think the closest analogy we have is Canada. Uh, you know, what, what do you think about that? I mean, what, why do you agree with that? Or do you think that, um, you know, these examples from these other countries are also relevant? I, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think it is worth looking into what happens in Oregon, particularly as Oregon's regime is probably most similar to what the Baroness Meacher bill is trying to introduce. So in Oregon, it's it's not a euthanasia regime. It's just assisted suicide. Um, the patient is always the person who takes the final act to kill themselves. Um, but again, I think there are huge problems with the comparison because Oregon is such a different healthcare system to the UK. It's obviously a private system, insurance-based system. And so the doctors who are taking part are, you know, private doctors who are being paid by private healthcare insurance companies if it's offered. And so it's, it's much more individualistic. Uh, it's almost like an opt-in system. And the fascinating thing about Canada is that while they don't exactly have an NHS like us, they do have universal state-funded healthcare, which actually works through kind of government, as far as I understand it, government kind of run insurance. Um, uh, and so that's why we've seen the kind of the, the spectre of the postcode lottery um and because the whole point is that the supreme court said that effectively said that canadians have a constitutional right to be killed by their doctors should they so request in these circumstances that means that in every province in every town in every county of canada uh this has to be made available and that is much more akin i think to what situation that we would have here which is that it would become integrated into the nhs you know a secular state-funded health system and it would be rolled out automatically across every NHS hospital. And so I think Canada is a really, really instructive example that, and, you, and when you read the arguments from the kind of pro-dying uh, with dignity Canada, I think they're called the kind of pro-lobby, they're, they're so reminiscent of what you hear in the UK. So they're very calm, they're, they're very soothing, don't worry, this won't, this won't, um, this is very going to be very strict, it's just going to be six months live, a tiny number of people, the numbers will be small. It's worth noting that the numbers have gone up every single year. I believe they've now increased 300% people each year who are wanting, uh, who are taking on, uh, who are requesting assisted suicide. Um, And they also say that, don't worry, this won't affect palliative care. This will be a really small, minor, progressive reform for a few people. Uh, There'll be plenty of conscience provisions. um, And and that's all the same kind of reassuring words that you hear from, from Dying With Dignity UK in this country, formerly known as the Voluntary Euthanasia Society, it's worth noting. Um, but the truth is, is that actually as soon as they kind of got a foothold in the law, things began to unravel much, much faster than almost anyone expected. Yeah, so we probably ought to be bringing things to a close, but I think it's um, there are lots of reasons to be concerned. And, and I think um, 
this next uh, the debate that's going to come up in the House of Lords and, and almost certainly there will also be debates in the House of Commons in the next few months are going to be very critical for the future of medicine in this in this country and I, I think it's just perhaps on this final point that it the, the point about the care of the dying and whether or not some kind of suicide or uh, intentional killing is is allowed as part of medical care that affects pretty much every clinical department throughout the NHS um, because virtually all areas of a, of a modern hospital deal with dying people and therefore uh, once the law on dying is changed once some kind of uh, form of medical intervention to to bring about death is legalized this will have enormous repercussions across the whole of the NHS and and so I think in a future podcast we'll we'll think more about that and, and, and possibly look at sort of disaster scenarios what what might happen if the law was changed is there a way of creating uh, euthanasia free zones within the NHS or within some kind of private uh, healthcare system yeah definitely I think there's a lot more to to dig into in this um it's also worth kind of noting isn't it that um on your website John you've got a large uh, amount of resources not just this piece you mentioned about what's wrong with the assisted dying bill but for people who aren't maybe familiar with the debate um about the kind of debate in, in general there's some interesting work I've read about you've got pieces about the argument from autonomy and the argument from compassion um, and some of your books as well go into this in detail. So if people who maybe want a bit of a refresher or a backgrounder, there's there's loads of good material there on johnwyatt.com. Great. Well, I'm sorry it's been a, a grisly topic this morning, but I think it's an important <laughs> one. And uh, I'm, I'm very close to home. So uh, I look forward to having further discussions in the future. Great. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which has plenty more resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we've talked about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T.com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter, and you can find some of my journalism at tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com, or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic you'd like us to explore, or a news development to respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.